Well, good morning, church family. My name is Bill, and I have the privilege of serving as one of your pastors here. I'm excited and a little daunted to come to this part of God's word this morning, so would you pray with me? Father, we come week in and week out with a belief that what we are doing here is more than simply reading or hearing some words, but that we have been meeting with you and we now sit by no means at my feet, but at your feet for you to teach us. So take these words that the Apostle Peter wrote, take your scripture here and help us to push it into our hearts and our minds and our lives in a way that we would be different people that we would be able to say, God did this in us. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen. If you would, if you've closed your Bible, please open it back up again to these words Peter wrote. What a text to come to this morning. Um, With mask mandates and mandates against mask mandates and school curricula and attacks on the Capitol, and abortion cases before the Supreme Court, and changes of which party is in power, and midterm elections coming, and seemingly when parties switch positions, they switch many of their arguments in a way that's hard not to feel cynical about. I mean, we almost dread to tread into Peter's words this morning. And and if you don't, I do. Um, But all those things and more are why we desperately need to step into these words this morning. But what do we do with them? I mean, what do we do with words like this when the civil rights movement has got to count as one of the sort of moral high points of our national history? Or when Peter himself, when forbidden by the Jewish authorities to preach Jesus, said, no, I've got to obey God, not men. And and how do we apply these to a political system that you may well dislike intensely, or maybe you love, or maybe you work in? How do we approach these words this morning to get something from them that God would give us? Well, first off, we need to recognize that everything we're going to say really works out of verse 11. So look down at your Bibles. Peter starts out with some words that should feel incredibly familiar because they're the words with which he began his letter. Dear friends, he writes, I urge you as aliens and strangers, depending on your translation, you may have sojourners and exiles. These are the words Peter started chapter one with. And so Peter begins with the premise, the assumption, the understanding that In the end, as as Christians, we have a citizenship that is in heaven above that trumps all. That in the end, as Christians, we put our hope in no earthly government, no matter which one it might be, that we are citizens of God's kingdom. And yet, immediately on saying that, we are also literally citizens of nations on this earth. How do we live in both contexts at once? How ought we think about this? Well, 
<clears throat> when we think about that, to put the thesis in as simple of a form as we possibly could, here's Peter's basic point this morning. Obeying God includes obeying the government. <laughs> obeying God includes obeying the government. Now, we're going to come back and nuance that a bit, but let's be very careful that we don't let the basic point of the scripture die the death of a thousand cuts and a thousand qualifications. Peter says our role is to obey the authorities. How are we supposed to think about that? Well, before we go on, let's make sure we understand what's happening in this letter we call 1 Peter, because verses 11 and 12 form the hinge. Today's passage is, in a sense, the pivot point from one part of the letter to the next. And that's why Peter seems to repeat these words from the very beginning. He's creating a bookend. He's creating a first section of his letter. That first section of his letter has all been about who we are. Not what we do, but who we are. Why? Because that's the gospel order. You see the exact same thing in all of Paul's letters. You see the exact same thing in Christian theology more generally. We don't ever start with what we do, I guarantee you down that path lie the dragons of legalism. The gospel doesn't start with what we do. The gospel starts with what Jesus has done and what he has done in us and for us that he has made us different, that he has made us new. The story of the gospel really is that God has met us in grace. He has made us his people. So Peter, throughout the first chapter and a half of his letter, has concentrated on who you and I are in Christ. But that grace that we've received, as we often say here, it changes everything, even how we treat other people. And so now, with this passage, Peter hinges his letter and begins to think about the implications of who we are, in a sense, verses 11 and 12, he is simply going to apply again and again and again and again, at least through the next couple chapters, if not all the way to the end of the letter. So today he applies this principle from verse 11 and 12 to how we deal with secular governments, with authorities over us. Next week, he'll extend that. Ryan will be back up talking about how did Peter apply that to slaves and to masters? And then to family relationships, to husbands and wives, then to suffering, then to relationships in the Christian community. In other words, hang on, because it's going to be a bumpy ride. And several of these will probably peg us between the eyes, and pretty much every one of them is going to make us uncomfortable. So what is Peter doing? Well, look at verse 11. Look at the principle. He says, exiles and sojourners, in other words, we as Christians are people scattered through a non-Christian world. And as such, who we are determines how we live. Who we are is what fundamentally controls how we live. Maybe the way to think about this would be an analogy which many of you know well because it's been your profession, that of a diplomat. A diplomat is a citizen of one nation who lives in another. And as a citizen of that nation, what is the fundamental allegiance, the fundamental care and control is where his or her citizenship is. Of course they live differently in the society they live in. And a good diplomat is going to obey much of the law, if not all of the law, if they can, of the country they live in. Have you ever been cut off on the road by one of those diplomat plates? 
it doesn't do much good for the witness of that country, does it? When you think, oh, and I even saw they had a bumper sticker, right? A good diplomat lives by much of the law of the government under which he or she lives, but it's a tragedy par excellence if he or she forgets where their citizenship is. So we are people as Christians whose citizenship is in heaven, but who live here on earth. And Peter simply asked this question in the passage we're going to look at today, how does that affect dealing with the government? How does that affect dealing with the authority that we have in front of us? And to try to understand that, we'll very briefly ask four questions of our text. Those questions are going to be what, when, why, and how. So look down in your Bible, let's start with the what. What does Peter actually tell us to do We really see that in verses 13 and 14. And Peter makes very clear here, government's actually a good thing. Peter says governments exist and they ought to punish people who are doing what's wrong and reward people who are doing what's good. In other words, as Christians, we have a biblical role for government. We're not anarchists. We're not hyper-individualists. It's a good thing for there to be a government even a government that's not Christian. A secular government is still not a bad thing is the way Peter says this. If you were to flip over to the book of Romans, and if you were to read in chapter 13, that pesky fellow Paul goes so far as to say God even establishes these secular governments. And what does Peter say here that we're supposed to do? He says we're supposed to submit to them, to obey them, Now, I don't know about you, but I hear that and instantly my brain starts going with questions. Well, in what situations? How often? I mean, to what extreme? How far should we take this? And you may find yourself saying, well, that sounds great if the government's doing good. And if we've got a good government and a righteous government, of course we should obey it. But what about when the government ain't so good? How how do we approach it then? How do we approach it when we struggle against things the government does? We're really asking the second question, when? I mean, when should I do this? Always? Are there exceptions? And in this, we want to think very carefully and recognize that though there are situations where a Christian not only can but must disobey the government, it's a really high bar a really high bar. Let me try to show you what the text means. Look at 13 and 14 again. The chap on the throne, the emperor to which Peter refers, is a man named Nero. You may have heard of Nero. Yeah, that guy. Now, we're probably when 1 Peter is written early in Nero's reign which means he hasn't gone absolutely bonkers yet like he will by the end. He's not burning Christians at the stake yet. The persecution that Peter's audience feels is mainly political and economic and social. Now, it's going to get worse eventually. There will come a point where, in fact, even Peter's own audience has to resist when the Roman Empire forbids their worship of Jesus, when it demands their worship of Caesar, and in which Christians will die for their faith and disobedience to the government. But at the time Peter writes this letter, that ain't it. And here's why that's so important, of course. 
The persecution you and I feel, if we feel it at all, is certainly of the type, or might be even less than the type, that Peter's own audience is feeling. Nobody in Peter's audience who was a Christian reading this letter was working for the government. Our Fairfax site, other than fire department activity, was supposed to start meeting this morning at a local high school, at Woodson High School. They'll start next week, presuming there's no more fire department activity. Well, that's a government-funded, built, and freely leased to us high school. If anything, Peter may have a line. He must have a line because he wouldn't listen when the Jewish authorities forbade him to preach Jesus. But his line's over there somewhere. And we're way back here. And so if anything, Peter's command to his people applies all the more to us. There does come a time, I mean, the Bible does say, if you survey all the biblical texts about how we relate to government, there can come a time in which we say, no, my citizenship is in heaven and I dare not right here. Now, by the way, if you ask 50 thinkers exactly what that line is, they'll give you 50 different places exactly where that is. Um, I was talking to Lewis right before we started, Lewis who prayed a minute ago, and he did his study in undergrad on this question and everybody draws the line at a different place, but wherever you draw it, Peter's group isn't there yet. He says, obey the emperor, and we're not even where Peter's group was yet. And so we may find ourselves thinking, oh, but you don't know how bad it could get. No, we don't. And we may find ourselves thinking, so we've got to deal with this now, so we keep it from ever getting there, and yes, I totally get that, and yet, if we find ourselves creating a future terrible situation so that we can justify clearly disobeying the Bible now, there's a line called rationalization and we may have just jumped over it with both feet. We must be very careful to recognize that Peter told his crew, and I think by extension us, obey the government until you very, very much don't have to and that's a really high bar. And so when? Well, Peter seems to say to us now, when do we obey the government? Now. Why? Why would Peter push this? Why do we need to hear it? Well, he answers that explicitly in verse 15, the next verse in our passage. Now, he started talking about it implicitly back up in verse 12. You notice in verse 12, he says, though they accuse you of evildoing, well, first century Roman historians tell us that Christians were reviled. More than one reason, they were considered to most likely be cannibals because people of the Roman Empire misunderstood the Lord's Supper. They misunderstood what the Christians meant when they said, this is his body, take and eat. This is his blood, drink from this cup. Christians were considered likely cannibals even more because they talked about having another king, a king named Jesus. They must be seditious. They must be dangerous. They must be stamped out. Christians were accused of all sorts of evil doing at the time of Peter's letter. Well, do you realize, of course, that's to some degree where our society has started to turn. 10, 15 years ago, Here's what most of my non-Christian friends said to me about why they didn't need Jesus. They said, look, I feel like you Christians have done a great amount of good in this world. They said, I see the hospitals, I see the education, I see the mercy. They say, Christianity's been wonderful, I just don't think it's true. And so, 
our task for so many years has been to say, no, this is true. Well, I don't know about you, but I'm hearing a lot more of a very different take this day. More of my non-Christian friends and certainly more of the anti-Christian things I read, they no longer say Christianity is good but false. Now they say Christianity is bad. It's evil. We, are, we have lived through a change, honestly, to bring us back much more to this time where non-Christians look at us and say, you are evil. And Peter says, why obey this government? He says, so that when that charge gets made, even the people who hear it laugh and they say, are you kidding? I know a Christian. That's absurd. That's not how they live. Peter says, live such good lives that when that charge of being evil gets leveled, people say, you've got to be kidding. I may not agree with what that person believes, but I've got to tell you, I know their morals, I know their ethics, I know their kindness. Uh Uh-uh, it doesn't stick. Well, if the what is that we obey the government, the when is now, the why is so that people will realize who Jesus is. Well, third, fourth question, how? How might we do this? And here you turn to the last portion of our passage, verses 16 and 17. Peter starts with a statement. He says, this starts with understanding what freedom means. And and here we want to be very careful because if we misunderstand what Peter means by freedom, we could get the entire wrong point out of this passage. When Peter says freedom here, he does not mean Mel Gibson at the end of Braveheart, though I love that movie. He does not mean, oh, say can you see, though I am exceptionally grateful for the liberties we enjoy. When Peter says the word freedom here, he means Christian freedom. He means the realization that we report to Jesus and as such we are fundamentally free of everything else. It's our ability to say, I know my Lord and he is the one in charge and he is the one who's my authority. Peter says, though, be very careful that when we say that, look at verse 16 and 17, it doesn't become a cover-up for evil. Well, this yields yields a very disturbing thought. I might actually be advocating for my Christian freedom and really believe I am and yet actually be sinning. I might be self-deceived. I might think I'm campaigning for my freedom and what I'm actually doing is just justifying my own sin. But here's the problem with self-deception, of course. We can't sense it because we're deceived. How would I know if I've fallen into this trap? Well, look at the list Peter gives us in verse 17. He gives us four things. And maybe these are a little bit of a diagnostic. Show proper respect to everyone. Everyone? I mean, even those people, even on Facebook, even with what I forward, even with what I think, I mean, everyone's a remarkably categorical word. Do I show respect to everyone? Second, love the brotherhood of believers and not with qualifications like once they got their theology right or once they've started really shaping up that type of behavior, or once they agree with me, or once we get along, or the ones who have a personality that fits with me. No, he just says, everybody in the family of God loves them. How well do I do with that? Or is it only the ones that are sort of in my group? 
Third, fear God. Um, Now, fear not in the sense of utter terror, but in the sense of an incredibly healthy respect with the awe of the fact that the God who's given us grace is the almighty creator of this world. Well, don't we realize that every time we sin, at least for that moment, we don't fear him that much? At that moment, I love whatever else it is that I want to do more than I actually love doing what God would have me do. I don't fear him. And then fourth, Peter says, honor the king. The king, Nero, the pagan emperor who would declare himself a god. Honor even that king. Well, woo, do we have a lot to work with here. How'd you do? On the most charitable grading scale possible, maybe I went one for four. But on any kind of a standard at all that really looks at my heart, I just went zero for four. And I dare say so did every one of us. I mean, think of what happens when you get around your friends who agree with you and you start to rile each other up. Think what happens on social media or at work. Think what happens just in our own heads and our own hearts when we think about those people who just drive us nuts. Maybe let's close with a fifth question. Why don't we do this? Why don't we live this way? Because on any objective standard, we're all going 0 for 4 on this, on this list that Peter gives us in verse 17. Why? Well, here's why. Because when it really comes down to it, we don't want there to be any authority over us. We'd all much rather be our own authority. That's a whole lot more fun, a whole lot more comfortable. Truth is, when there's a government that we agree with, of course it's easy to obey because it's not impinging on our lives at all. So when we like what the government's doing, that's not really a test. Of course we obey because they're not actually pushing on us. But you realize it's far beyond government. I mean, kids, of course you don't like it when your parents tell you what to do. And we don't like it when our boss corrects us. And we don't like it when somebody else gets in our face on something. When it really comes down to it, we don't just not want government to be our authority over us. We don't want anything to be our authority over us. And in fact, if you really think about it, we don't want God to be the authority over us. And it's a problem as old as Genesis 3. When Satan comes to Adam and Eve in the garden, he comes and he whispers. He says, really? Does God get to tell you what you can and can't do? Is that what really you want? No. No, you want to be your own God. You want to choose. You don't want any authority over you. And in fact, we don't want any authority over us. Our problems with governments are really symptomatic of a much bigger problem. We don't want God to be able to tell us what to do. We want to be our own gods. But think of the counterpoint of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, who is the almighty God, the one who made heaven and earth and all that is in them, the one who puts in and upholds and sustains every human government, the one with whom, without whom every one of us would just cease to exist instantly, stands before Pilate. He stands before Pilate, whom he created, whom he sustains, whose insides he knit together, and Jesus Christ doesn't assert his authority. He's silent. 
When Christ is arrested in the garden, Peter swings a sword and says, let's fight. Jesus says, put your sword away. Don't you know I could have 70,000 some odd angels here at the moment I ask? That God, in front of the most unjust decision that has ever been made in the world by a government official, to take Jesus Christ, God himself, who has done nothing wrong and crucify him, submits he is silent. He accepts that authority. Why would he do that? Why would the God of all of heaven and earth silently sit there and submit to a wrong, false, unjust government? He did it for you. He did it for you because he felt it was more important to save you and me than to assert what was completely his by right. And in that we get a picture of what God would have for us. If we want to relate rightly to the authorities on this earth, what we first must do is see Jesus and be conformed into his image, to be made like him. And what that does is it frees us to relate in an entirely different way to the governments with which we live. We can see their flaws and we can think that they are important, but we are not rushing into an idolatry of them where we must seize control and control them because at all costs, that is our only hope. We know that we are citizens of another kingdom and no human government could be our ultimate hope. And yet, we are also not in a situation where we have to disdain that government to do everything we can to destroy it because again, we know that for all the power God has given us, it's not our ultimate hope. We're free to relate to a government, to see its injustice, to see its flaws, to still submit to it, but as citizens who still ultimately report to a higher king, Jesus Christ himself. So how would, how would Peter have us walk out of, this with our, out of here with this in our heads and our hearts? Well, I've got to tell you, Peter could never have imagined a congregation like this, either here or online or down in our fellowship hall. In Peter's world, I mean, if you put Peter here right now and said, by the way, people listening to you will work in the military and in the federal government and in the local and state government, they will be diplomats, they will be police, (laughs) he wouldn't even know how to process the world he had stepped into. None of that was available to his people. So if that's you, what, what would the text say? Here's what I'd suggest. It says, go forth and do your job with the utmost excellence you possibly can. Work as hard as you ever have. Work harder. Do everything in you to do this job for the declaring of what's good, for seeing what's right, for rewarding what's good, for even punishing what's wrong, because that's something God has ordained. And do it all the way verse 17 says. Speak well of all people. Fear God. Honor the king, even Nero, even then an administration we don't like or we love because the wheel will turn sooner or later. Go forth and do everything, but you say, well, but that way of living does not work in our modern world, Bill. That's just going to be a fail. Well, maybe, but 
I've never seen anything in the Bible which says you're allowed to just check your ethics so you win in our political environment. That doesn't seem to be the way Peter approaches it. Go give it even more than you've ever given it. Just do it God's way. Um, But what about the rest of us who don't work in that world? Well, what would Peter say to us? He'd say, look, when it comes to it, it's the same four things. Love God by submitting to this government. Maybe someday there would be a change, but that's not it right now. He would look at us and say, don't you realize the opportunity you have, but don't misrealize it. We tend to think, those of us who live in D.C., whether we work in politics or not, that the way we will make disciples, the way we'll make a difference in this world is by creating the government of our dreams. But Peter seems to say it might actually be by submitting to a government that's far less than our dreams. One that in Peter's own world was a bit of a nightmare. Yet Peter says, in Jesus, here's how we live. Let's try it. Would you pray with me? Father, these are insanely challenging things to think about, and we haven't scratched the surface of nuance. Yet even without that, help us not to miss the main thing for the little things. And help us to see how to live this in our lives and our world. Give us spirits of humility that would always recognize our true citizenship. And recognizing that would be free to live to your glory, the good of your people, and even the good of this broader world in the lives, in the vocations, and in the days and weeks and months and years that you give us. We pray it and we ask it in Jesus' name who gave it all. Amen.